0: us? Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. And the Word says this, "'Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands.' to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell." where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another.
1: All right. Thank you, Mike. We're going to do a couple things really quickly and uh one of them is to repeat after me the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. hallelujah amen wow that was that was exuberant i like that probably be doing that in heaven um hallelujah so that means Halle, that means that's the root of word that means praise and then ja or ya jehovah jehovah that's god so it means praise god So when we say hallelujah, that means that it is time to pull our hearts and our souls into praising God. And you don't need to be waiting to do that when you come to church, although we want you to do that when you're at church. But uh, I would encourage you to be driving. And when you're going down the road and you see somebody that uh, swerves right in front of you and the Lord protects you, I mean, honestly, I would—my heart— I think almost always reflexively just says, thank you, God. Praise God. When you find a set of keys that you thought you lost, praise God. I found today a hat that I've been looking for for about six months. Isn't that crazy? I moved my dresser. It fell behind my dresser. I should probably clean more often, right? But I what what is the response it is to say thank you god thank you i've been actually praying lord would you help me find this hat and i haven't been able to find it for months so hallelujah praise god now the second thing i want you to think about is uh, i had a conversation with uh, somebody actually my son had a conversation with somebody this week and the conversation went like this he Went to church when he was younger, and all the church talks about is sin and hell, and says, I just don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to be part of that anymore. So as you just heard from Mike when he read this, there's a lot of mentions that Jesus gives of sin. You know what? One it's not a fun fact, one interesting fact is that nobody, nobody, nobody talked about hell more in the Bible than Jesus. He actually created the place. So we do want to talk about hell, and we do want to have to talk about sin, and I'll tell you why. It's because the bad news is what makes the good news so good. If you take the bad news out, then the good news is really not very impelling. And if all you give is the good news and you, know, you don't get that bad news, again, it's not very impelling. And if you only give the bad news, but you don't give the good news, that's rather despairing. You really have to have both. And I say it like this, and again, the bad news is what makes the good news so good. Well, we're going to hear actually a lot of good news in a passage that you would think is full of bad news. And all summer what we've been doing is we've been learning how can we love like Jesus? How how can we how can we be a church that seriously joyfully loves like Jesus? Do you not want to be in a church that loves like Jesus? I I don't. I mean, if I wasn't the pastor or one of the pastors of this church, I certainly would find a church where they're learning. They're not perfect, no churches, but they're learning to love like Jesus. That's the church I want to be part of, and that's the church that I want to be a pastor of. So today's message that Mike just read, that you just followed along with, that we're about to unpack, it has some of the strongest most confrontational words of Jesus in the entire Bible. Actually, this passage, if you read this in commentaries, uh, they will often say it's one of the most difficult passages to understand. And I want to show you, though, why Jesus is so confrontational to his disciples and why he is so confrontational. We're about to hear it to us. Look at verse 31, chapter chapter 9, Mark 9, verse 31. It's a turning point. Verse 31 is a turning point. It's a turning point for Jesus and his disciples because he's telling them now without any kind of mystery, I am going to die. My life is going to be taken from me. When he spoke... Verse 31. It's about eight months, I believe, before his crucifixion. And from this point on, he's going to become incredibly focused with his disciples to make them ready because they're not ready. You're going to see that in this passage if you read through it. Before the verses 42 through 50, if you read through it, they failed. They failed somebody came to them a father whose son was possessed by a demon it's masquerading as modern-day epilepsy it threw him into seizures and the boy was thrown into the water almost drowning thrown into the fires almost burning to death this demon would just throw and thrash this boy so this father Desperately comes to the disciples, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they're all up on the mountain. That's where he's transfigured. His glory bursts through the bonds of his humanity. But down below, he comes, this father did, to the disciples. And they failed. They could not cast the demon out, which was shocking to them because they've been doing this. They've been casting demons out. They hadn't failed before, but now they did. And Jesus links their problem with unbelief. They didn't believe. So Mark 9.31 It's a turning point. And he is aggressively discipling them. Because if these disciples, who are the early church, this is the nucleus of the early church, if they are going to fail with their unbelief, the church is going to fail. He must get them ready. But they are far from ready. They are weak in their faith. They are squabbling with each other. They are filled with pride. They are more concerned with who is the greatest of the disciples than the people that are suffering all around them. So he's going to teach them in this passage that Mike read all about our radical responsibility that we must have a radical repentance so that we can form radical relationships. And we're gonna learn the same lessons, and here we go. Number one, disciples of Jesus have a radical responsibility for each other. Look at verse 35, now you have to have your Bibles open. You have to follow through, or else it's not gonna really make much sense. So let's, let's just learn what the Word of God says. It's an amazing book, it's living and active. Verse 35, Jesus sat down and called the 12. Did you you know why? Now, Mark wrote this. Peter, this is actually the gospel of Peter, narrated by Mark. So Mark was his scribe. So Peter's the one telling the story. So Jesus sat down and called the 12. Peter's one of the 12. Why does Mark say very specifically Jesus sat down? Who cares? Well, we do care, and it's important because this means he's about to teach them. Rabbis always sat down when they taught, and he is about to teach them a lesson. They've been walking throughout Galilee. They're heading towards Capernaum. And he overhears them. They're not very good at keeping things very quiet. And especially when your pride and ego are involved, their voices get raised. He overheard them arguing as they walked. Look at verse 34 about who was the greatest. So verse 35, he sits down, calls them to him, and he says, If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew's one of the disciples, he was there too. He also records this incident of teaching. But Matthew's perspective is going to be a little bit different than Peter's perspective. And Matthew's going to tell us something that Mark does not tell us. In Matthew 18, 4, he said, Jesus did. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he took a child from Capernaum. There's a lot of people around the inner circle where the disciples, but there's a lot of people listening. And there's children, just like we have children here right now. And kids, I want you to know, you should listen too. You can understand a lot of what you're going to hear. Jesus took somebody one of your ages and he brought him into the circle and he held him. He hugged him. And he's looking at the disciples and said, you've got to humble yourself like this child if you're going to think you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven and then john if you look at the passage briefly in mark 9 interrupts seems to take him on a tangent and tells him about some guy that was casting demons out remember the disciples just failed at doing that very thing and john says we told them to stop because he's not one of us Jesus, in no uncertain words, says, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? You think you're the elite? Do you think that you are not able to do things for the kingdom of God if you're not one of the 12? Listen, I've got disciples all over the place. Don't tell them to stop. If, he's not, if that man's not against us, he's for us. Now, I will tell you what I think is happening. I might be wrong. Jesus is really hammering the disciples. He's talking about their pride. Now, if I were to sit down with you, and the Lord made this abundantly clear, and you would allow me to do this, and I told you about your pride, how it's visible, and how it's robbing you of life, you would probably get a little uncomfortable. You would get a little squeamish inside. Well, this is what's happening to the disciples. I think what John's doing is he's trying to take the conversation in another direction. And Jesus dealt with it and then brought it right back. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, you might be thinking, there's a little child in the midst, Jesus was hugging him. He said, you gotta humble yourself like a little child. You might be thinking, little ones means children. It's not really true though. Little ones is not just children, it can include them. Now listen, this is really important. It's any child of God who is weak and young in their faith. If you lead any child of God who is forming and strengthening in their gospel faith, you lead them astray. He said, there's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and die here because that will pale in comparison to the judgment of God that's gonna come to you. That's exactly what he's telling them. This is intense, I told you. These are confrontational words. This is Jesus getting his disciples ready, and they're not ready. Well, let's think about millstones for a minute because this gets really, uh, it, it gets hard to actually hear this and teach this. There were two millstones in Israel. One was a smaller one that usually a lady could, with a handle through the middle of it, walk it around and crush the grain and make the flour for their bread. They ate bread every day. That's why we have so many verses talking about daily bread. Bread was a staple for them. That was the little millstone. That's not the word here in the Greek. This is the upper or the big millstone. You know what, they found these as heavy as 3,300 pounds. Jesus said, that millstone, you know, the one where you put a pole through it and you tie it to a donkey and it goes around in circles and crushes a vast amount of grain. This is a mill. That millstone, he says, if you're leading somebody who is young and immature in their faith away from their faith so it shipwrecks your faith, it'd be better if you were put into a boat. Now, listen. It rode out to the sea, and one rope tied around your neck, and the other one threw that hole in the middle of the millstone and tied. And this is, by the way, how they did execute traitors in both Roman and Greco world. It'd be better if you were thrown into the water, and then the men levered that millstone into the water next to you, and as that millstone plunges to the bottom of the ocean floor, it will snap your neck taut and drag you down to your death in a silent scream he is being incredibly confrontational which by the way is very interesting because if you know John Piper his son has really walked away from the faith and makes it his purpose in life to lead other people to deconstruct their faith. The penalty is most severe for that man. That death, Jesus said, would be an easier one than the coming judgment of God. He warned them. He's warning the disciples and friends. Listen, Christians, he's warning us as well. Do not be puffed up and arrogant. Do not let pride grow in your heart. Do not think that you are the greatest and cause other Christians and young believers to stumble. See, we each have a radical responsibility for each other to help each other grow in the faith. Now, let's just, you know, be a sample our audience for just a second. All right, there's people here that have been Christians for a very, very, very long time. And they are deep in God's Word. They are strong in their faith, right? There's some who have been Christians for not very long, maybe 10 years. And they're growing, and they're hungry, and they're growing bit by bit spiritually in their faith. There's people here that have not been Christians for very long at all, and they've been struggling to grow in their faith. I mean, storm after storm and trial and life difficulty and suffering sometimes can squeeze out that hope. It can make spiritual growth kind of sputtering. And there's people here, I'm sure, who probably aren't Christians. I am like amazed that you're here, and I am so thankful that you're here. This is where I want you to be. I want you to hear about Jesus. And then you can make up your mind on that. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, then all of this stuff is kind of new to you. And you might be hearing some of these sermons and at different points of the messages feel... On one hand, arguing with what I'm saying, arguing with the text, and then on the other hand, you feel this warmth inside of you that's drawing you, but you're not quite ready, and it might draw you a little bit more tomorrow or next week until, Lord willing, you will be ready, but you're not ready yet. So we've got people here from all places in their spiritual journey. And every single one of us have a radical responsibility for each other to encourage to sometimes if need be confront to sometimes if necessary exhort but always love and always be patient and always breathe courage into each other that's our responsibility jesus is teaching this to his disciples just like he is for us point number two though Disciples of Jesus must have a radical repentance from sin. Now, man, you thought point one was pretty tough. Point two is going to really dial it in. The 12 disciples were the church before the church was created. And it wasn't looking very good. They were full of pride. They didn't really care much for each other. One was a betrayer. Some worried about money. He's exposing their pride here. In Capernaum, he sat down to teach. He calls the 12. He's really laying out their hearts. Here's what he does. And by the way, here's what God does to all of us. Usually during preaching, anytime you're in the Word of God, he unzips your heart and exposes it and starts showing you what he's been seeing all along down in there. That's what he's doing to them. And he's showing them, he's telling them, he's explaining to them, he's actually teaching them that when you see sin, when you see pride, which is at the root of every sin, the only solution is a radical repentance. So let me ask you a question to help unzip your heart. Let me ask, let me ask a few of them. And listen, you're never, you don't have to respond in any way, so you can be utterly, utterly honest Do you hate your own sin? I mean hate it. Like you would hate someone who's trying to discredit you at work or harm you or abuse you. Do you have that hatred for your own sin? Or do you hate other people's sins more than yourselves, your own? well let me dial that in okay so here's four questions for you do you see how greatly you are in need of God's forgiveness and if not that you cannot be saved do you know that have you ever come to the point where you have seen you are desperately desperately in debt to God which is why the word forgiveness was always a financial word It means you've got to erase the debt by absorbing the cost this is what God did. He sent his son to erase the debt by absorbing the cost by dying in our place. He shed his blood so that we could be saved. So do you ever have you ever gotten to the point where you have seen how greatly you are in need of God's forgiveness or else you can't be saved? Now listen, if you've not gotten there, it's just simple, okay? And I, I don't mean to be like, I'm certainly not meaning to... Talk down on anybody, but if if you haven't gotten to that point, you cannot, you cannot cry out to God for salvation. Here's the best that you can do: God, I need a little help. I'm almost there. I just need a little help to get over the top. You can't be saved that way. The only way you can be saved is to realize you don't need just a little help. You're in absolute total need of help because there's nothing you've ever done that has curried favor with God, that has earned favor with God. You're not 80% there and you just need 20% help. You are less than 0%. In fact, you're so far in debt, you are hopelessly never going to be able to pay it off. Until you get to that awareness, you cannot, you simply cannot be Saved. Question number two Do you eat more than you need? And if so, do you have a godly sorrow over your own gluttony? Do you eat more than you need? Are there movies or TV shows that deep down you know God does not want you watching? Remember, you can be as honest as you can possibly be because you don't need to signal anything with anybody here. It's just between you and God. Fourth, if Jesus went shopping with you, would you put into the online cart Or the store cart, what you do? Would you really buy that if he was right there with you? Or is materialism grabbing hold of your heart? Listen, that's only four of hundreds of questions that any of us could ask each other that burrow down into the bottom of your heart to see if we hate our sin. I, I'm going to give you one more. as a freebie. If everything you said today, just today, was recorded, how would you feel if Jesus came up to this pulpit speaking into a microphone and read the transcript of your words? Just today's. See, God is serious about sin. I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but I need you to get sober-minded about this. God despises our sin. He hates it. Because sin always, listen, sin always, without exception, destroys life. Do you understand that God hates sin not because he is holy, not, not just because he's holy, not just because our sin is a rebellion against him. He hates that. I mean, that's just fact. Every sin you and I commit, this is me too, Is vertical that means you're telling god forget it i don't want your way i want my way i want my desires fulfilled more than i want your desires fulfilled or i want to i want to fulfill them in my way i want to be in control so sin always is vertical always there's no exception so yes god hates that because it's rebellion against your creator that that can't feel very good by god but i'll tell you what i think is the deeper reason he hates sin because it robs us of the life that he so much wants us to have. He created us for life. And your sin robs you of life, just like my sin robs me of life. And God is jealous that we have what he wants us to have. Parents, you understand this. You really get this when you see your children rebel against you. They are distra- It's never leading. It's never, ever, ever leading to their joy, to their welfare. It always leads to somewhere less than good. You see, sin is not just breaking a command of God. You remember my son had a friend. Remember I told you that didn't want to go to church anymore because all they talked about sin i'll tell you i'm pretty sure i wasn't at that church but i'm pretty sure that church probably only talked about sin as a breaking of god's command they didn't get to the root of it the root of it is this sin is not just breaking a command of god it's breaking the heart of god who loves you so incredibly And whatever it takes, God will deal with the sin in your heart so you can have life. He's not a God that delights in punishing you. You might have misunderstood that about God. You might see God with his finger poised over a cosmic smite button that every time you do something wrong, he just, you know, is up there gleefully laughing cackling and hitting the smite button, bringing something bad into your life. That's not God. It's never like God. He has a heart for you. He loves you. But sin is robbing you of life. It's breaking his heart. He will do anything, anything to rescue you from it. So Jesus says to his disciples, verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, I'm going to stop here and say something that I was going to say later, but I'm a little worried that maybe somebody watching this on time, uh, online, maybe their internet goes out right there, or you got to get up and go to the bathroom right there, and then you never come back, and that's all you heard, and you go out with a knife and start sawing off your wrist. I don't want you to do that. This is hyperbole meaning extraordinary exaggeration to make a point. Now listen, I'm going to explain that a little bit better. He goes on, It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now I want you to picture what is going through the disciples. Minds, just listen to those words from a disciple's point of view whose hearts are far from repentant. They're filled with pride. They're arguing about who is the greatest of, of all of them. Jesus is telling them he's gonna going die. He's gonna be crucified. They're talking about who's the greatest. So Jesus says, cut off your hands so you won't steal. Gouge out your eyes so you won't lust. Cut off your foot. If you plan to go to the bar to party and get drunk, that's basically what he's saying, if I could put it in modern application. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. He doesn't want to see Christians with eye patches. He doesn't want you to come up with a, to a Christian with an eye patch and go, dude, rough, rough week with lust. That's not his goal. He has a point. It is not self-mutilation. Here's why. It, won't, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't even work. The problem's not the hand and the foot and the eye. The problem is the heart. I'll give you an example. If you have ever seen Monty Python's movie, The Holy Grail, you'll remember the scene, very famous scene, where King Arthur meets the black knight who won't let Arthur cross the bridge. So they draw swords. Well, Arthur's an extraordinary swordsman. And in that sword fight, Arthur cuts off both legs, both both arms of the knight, but still the knight continues to spew out outrageous and boastful threats should Arthur try to pass. Even with no arms, no legs, the heart of the black knight was still prideful and boastful and angry and vengeful. Problem's not your hand or your eye or your foot. The problem, like me, is our heart. And here's the point Jesus is stressing to them. You are absolutely helpless to defeat this sin of your pride. It's the sin below your sin. You can't can't defeat it. I am your only hope. And that's why you must understand what faces me in Jerusalem. I'm going there to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be sacrificed in your place. And I will give you a new heart. And I will give you new desires. And I will give you a new mind so that you think like me, that you have my desires in you. and Then you won't want to sin. Here's the most amazing thing. Some of you are incredibly tempted by cigarettes. And some of you, if somebody brought a pack of cigarettes under your face, you're going to be like, what are you doing? I have no desire for that. I don't want that. And that's the That's the point. You don't have a desire for it in your life. Some of you do. Some of you have a desire for alcohol. Some of you have a strong, raging desire for sex. Some of you have a strong desire for money. Others don't really have that very much of a a desire for money. Therefore, if somebody says, hey, mega millions up to 700 million, going to be a billion soon. You're going to go buy a lottery ticket. And you're thinking, why? I don't even, and really want money in my life. I don't want that much money. Well, it's not a temptation then. Listen, here's the point. Jesus is telling us the problem is down in your heart. And the only way to get a new heart is by believing in the crucified, resurrected Jesus. That's it. Look at verse 49. Then he tells us how we can defeat the sin in our lives, how he's going to help us for everyone will be salted with fire. Wow, this is hard to understand. But what he's talking about is this, that just like every sacrifice, did you know this? Every sacrifice in the Old Testament had to be sprinkled with salt before it was put on the altar. Do you know why? Why salt was a symbol of the never-ending covenant of God, his faithfulness. So sprinkling salt on it for a Jewish man or a Jewish woman was the understanding that God will be faithful to forgive me. God will be faithful to come be with me, that I can have fellowship with him again. So Jesus is saying for everyone will be salted with fire. The main way that sin is purged from our hearts It's through the fire of trials. Just like salt was put on every sacrifice, every bowl, every bread offering, every grain offering, every pigeon offered in the temple, every Christian is gonna be salted with fire. You know what that means? It means you're gonna have trials. You're gonna suffer. And Peter tells us why. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right now, you're grieved by trials. That means things don't work well for you. Sometimes you get cancer. Sometimes you get in a car accident. Sometimes you get fire. Sometimes you lose all your money. That's suffering. And it can purify you from sin. It could turn your affections to God like never before. It can rid you of desires for the things of this world or the desires of the flesh. You can have an increasing love for God. And one of the worst trials of my entire life It was the most extremely difficult time in my life. I could not wait. Every day, I would think about it throughout the day. I could not wait to go to bed because the last thing I would do when I would turn off the lights and I would roll over, I always start on my right side, I would always start speaking to my Father in heaven. I would fall asleep speaking to my Father. I loved it. What brought me to that place of vulnerable intimacy? It was a fiery trial. You see, you come out of a trial differently. And then often you can look back and you can thank God for that difficult time. So church, God wants a holy people, a pure people who deal radically with sin through repentance. Trials and sufferings are how you are salted with fire. And that's his means to accomplish the purification of your heart. Finally, number three, it will be a little quicker. Disciples of Jesus are to have a radical relationship with each other. Are to have radical relationships with each other. Now, here's the summer series that you're hearing, Love Like Jesus, you see that sign behind me, right? But here's what we're doing. We're encouraging you into a community group. Our community groups are the best way that you can live out these one another's. We're asking you to join a community group. Come fall, in September, when we kick them off, we're asking you to be part of them. But let me tell you what could be a very bad experience. There was a Christian missionary, his name was E. Stanley Jones. He once asked Mahatma Gandhi this question. Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear so adamantly to reject becoming his follower you quote jesus but you won't follow him why gandhi and here's his answer he says i don't reject your christ i love your christ it's just that so many of you christians are so unlike your christ do you know why he said that it was a Sunday morning that Gandhi had decided to visit a Christian church in Kolkata, India. He got to the door of the church, and he was stopped by the ushers at the door. They told them he was not welcome, nor could he come in, as this was a high-caste Indian church. Church. It was for only high caste Indians or white people. And they sent him away, calling him a Kafir. A Kafir is an Indian and a Muslim racial slur. Now you know why Gandhi would not follow Christ. It had to do with the people of Christ. See, there's a great many Christians who have absolutely lost their witness in the world. They are no longer salty. And Jesus says, verse 49, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So now here's a bit of a switch because Jesus uses salt in a little bit different way. Here's the problem. When you guys go... To a restaurant, diner, or your own kitchen, and you start sprinkling salt or cracking the salt, that's purified salt. In Israel, they did not have purified salt. They had salt, but there's a whole lot of minerals with it. And if the rain would come, or if it would be very humid in their house, it would wash the salt away, though it never can erode. That's a permanent mineral. It would wash the salt away, and what you would sprinkle onto your food were minerals, but they didn't have salt. It couldn't do what salt was supposed to do. What it's supposed to do is flavor enhance and preserve your food. See, what Jesus says here is radical because the world was never as divided as in the first century. That's shocking, right? Because look at our country. You would think we're in the most divided place in human history. No, it was way worse in the first century. Gentiles hated Jews. Jews despised Gentiles. They really thought, they really truly thought, many of the Jews, that God created Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, so that he would have some fuel to burn the fires of hell. That's what they believed. They have men dominating women, women having no voice, the educated despising the uneducated, Masters cruel to slaves, slaves hating their masters, wealthy not even caring about the poor, and the poor absolutely giving up on the wealthy. It was the most divided world ever in the history of humanity, first century. In fact, Roman poet Juvenal likened Rome to a filthy sewer. He says, This country is filthy. The world needed then and it needs now a church of salted Christians who put life back in living, who hold back the corruption of evil, who can absolutely be a witness in their world. So he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another in verse 50. You remember a moment ago I just told you how divided the world was at the time of Christ? There, were sign- there was a sign in the temple. I, this is hard to even imagine this. In the temple of God, they put a, they put a series of signs. You see, the, the outermost temp- court in the temple of God was called the court of Gentiles. If you were not a Jewish person, that's as far as you could go. And there was a three and a half foot wall that divided the court of Gentiles from the next court in called the court of women. Jewish men and women could go in there. But all along this three and a half foot wall at every gate, there was a warning, te- uh, warning sign. And it basically said, no Gentile is, is to proceed further than this point. And if you do, your own death will be your fault. It was called the dividing wall of hostility. But suddenly, 50 days after Jesus raised back to life, both Gentiles and Jews were being saved. And they were coming into the church. But listen, after centuries of Gentiles hating Jews and Jews despising Gentiles, how are they gonna mix? How are they gonna form one body? How are they gonna be at peace with one another? Well, let me tell you how, and it's no different for us, Today, Jesus said, "...but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So let me ask you a question. Christian, I'm only speaking to you who are the redeemed. Is there... In your heart a killing of hostility well I'll dial that in just to be helpful is there anybody in this church anywhere in this church that you don't like that you're upset with that you're angry with that you hold a grudge against You're not keeping peace. You're abolishing peace. And you need to go make peace. Is there anybody at work, Christian, whether they're a Christian or not, that you don't like, that you are withholding love from, you need to pray for that person. You need to pray God's blessings for that person. You need to be... A form of God's blessings for that person. You need to demonstrate God's love to that person and make peace. See the reason for this is that salt never expires. And it symbolizes the enduring faithfulness of God, the promises of God, the love and favor of God will endure forever and if you are full of salt, you will carry out those promises faithfully to people. Now let me end with this. Peace is not, it is not meaning that you've gotten to the point where there are no more difficulties in your life because you can have peace in the midst of suffering. Peace is the calmness, the tranquility, the rest that comes into your heart because you've got a relationship of love with a powerful, good God who is on the throne, who is battling sin in your life because it's robbing you of life. He is relentlessly working sin out of you so that you can experience what he created you to have. A God that loves you, that's peace. And that's what you give to each other. That's what I give to each other. And the Spirit of God is working to persuade us deeply, That because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Father has given us favor. He's brought us into his family. He's protecting us. He's loving us. His promises are for us. And when that persuasion settles into the depths of your heart, you can give that same peace to anybody, even if they mistreat you, even if they're not kind to you, even if they don't love you very well. That same peace can flow from you to them. And that's the salt that will attract the Gandhis and the unsaved to Jesus. We have a radical responsibility for each other, so we must have a radical repentance from sin and its root, pride, and only then can we have a radical relationship in God's family, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. They are intense, and they were meant to be intense because he was going to be dying soon, and these disciples needed to be the church. There's a lot of lessons in this for us. Father, I pray that we would truly see that we have a responsibility for each other. It is radical. To help each other grow in our faith. And Father, that the only way we can really do that well is if we go to war against sin in our hearts and repent. Because we're not just breaking your commands, we're breaking your heart. You love us with a love that we cannot even imagine. And Lord, when we understand that responsibility and when we operate in that repentance, we will be able to have radical relationships, even with those who are not kind to us. Children with their parents, parents with their children, husbands with wives, Christian with Christian. We can be at peace with one another. We ask for your help in that, in Jesus' name, amen.